Hey everyone, welcome to The Down There, a podcast where we have candid conversations about all types of bodies in order to destigmatize talking about what we keep down there. I'm your host, Caitlin, and this episode brings me such joy to share with you because it's with Jenna Brown, or JB, of Love Over Fear Wellness. Jenna is a queer, full-spectrum doula and radical educator. They were our birth doula when I had my baby back in May, And they are the perfect person to explain what a doula does, what it means to be a full-spectrum doula, and maybe most important, what a doula can be. Because most of us don't really know. All I knew when my partner and I hired Jenna was that we were in need of somebody to help us plan for this birth and navigate the healthcare spaces that we were going to be immersed in. We got so much more than that and learned a lot about ourselves in the process. Jenna is so wise and is an expert in dropping gentle truth bombs that I want to soak into my bones, and I hope you feel the same. This episode also marks the end of our first season. Molly, Kate, and I are so grateful that you've come on this journey with us, visiting so many versions of people's down theirs. I also want to say thank you from me personally. This is a work in progress that I am excited to continue. Since my child's birth and for a significant portion of my pregnancy, I've battled perinatal depression. Usually when things get tough, I lean into it and share my struggle to remind myself and other people who might be going through the same thing that we are not alone. But not this time. I felt like a wounded animal that needed to hide in her cave to recover. And I was. I still am in some ways. I feel that I've failed to practice my values around transparency and community care. Why didn't I tell you I was having such a hard time? This podcast doesn't have to be perfect. Our existence in the online space doesn't have to be perfect, so why shy away? Yes, it's incredibly hard to find the energy and willpower to reach out from a state of depression. But I think the broader answer is that I have work to do on trusting my own voice. For me, that means more self-education, more conversations with folks who don't experience like me, and cultivating a willingness to fail more frequently. I think that's super important, actually. Failure is essential to long-term success, creativity, and living with your whole heart. It means letting go of fears that don't serve you. How appropriate for today's episode. So, that's what I want to bring back here when we return in early 2022 for our second season. In the meantime, tell us what you're interested in. What conversations would you like to hear? Do you have a story to tell? Are you a social media maven who we should hire to make our online presence more meaningful and sustainable to create? We want to hear from you. Links to all of our contacts are in the show notes. Here's Jenna Brown of Love Over Fear Wellness. Hey, hey, Jenna, thank you so much for being here on the podcast and in person, too. I know, it's so good to always see people in person these days. It is, even masked up. This is my first podcast with another human being sitting across from me in so long, I can't even tell you. It's exciting. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. It's great to see your face again. Yeah. Our sweet, sweet doula who changed our lives. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, half of my face. Yeah. 
Let's start off with this question. What is a doula and why do we need them? Mm. So a doula traditionally is someone who supports pregnant people through birth and into postpartum by providing informational, practical, emotional support. And this is a word that not everybody feels great about. It means woman slave or the root of it means woman slave. But it's a role that's existed throughout human history, across cultures, around the world, and it's really a community care role. And so, you know, when I think of a doula, I think expansively beyond just pregnancy, birth, and postpartum. The term full-spectrum doula, which is how I identify, was coined specifically to signal that there are doulas who support abortion. Full-spectrum meaning the full spectrum of pregnancy outcome, including miscarriage and abortion. And then even expanding further on that, I think a doula is anyone who sees us through a transition in this particular way where we're providing peer support and care. To that end, I think we all need doulas and we all have doulas, whether we know it or not, through any transition in our life that someone showed up or someone's showed up and made us feel seen, heard, understood, resourced. And I think that that is crucial for us in so many ways. What an incredible answer. When my partner and I were looking for a doula, what I was making up in my head was somebody to see us through a birth plan and the end of pregnancy and birth because we felt like, oh shit, we've never done this before. We don't know what we're doing. We need someone to do a little bit of handholding to give us some tough love and homework maybe. We wanted to make sure that we could we had the best experience possible in the hospital where we give birth, and also that my partner and I felt empowered and like we knew what we were doing. You helped us with those transitions in um, in such a special way. You not only were there for us in the ways that you're describing, but you also gave us new communication skills for what happens to us after the transition. And I imagine that you do that for people, not just in birth work, but in the full spectrum of your work. Mm -hmm. How did you come to being a doula? It's a good question. Thinking about that practical support you're describing, right? I think most people like hire a doula to because they want to make a birth plan or they want to have the tools they need for that specific experience. I think that's where we started, right? Mm -hmm. Me and Jared, like we sat down. That's like very much when we were first getting to know one another, what our conversations were oriented around. And in the same way, I found myself in this work where there's this practical side. Like we need these specific tools for these particular experiences we're moving through. And the first way that I interacted with that was around abortion. And this is before I knew what an abortion doula was or even what a doula was. But having had an abortion at a young age in my circle of friends and friends of friends, I was someone that folks knew they could ask questions of who would help them prepare and find the place that they could make an appointment. And what were the logistical steps that they needed to take in order to make it possible for them to access that care and so that practical side is very much still where I start with clients now and how I stepped into this work. And so moving from kind of just being that person in my communities 
into a variety of twists and turns in, in career that were always oriented towards, at least in some ways, education and caring for people. The word doula was kind of, I don't remember exactly how I came across it. It feels like it kind of fell into my scope of awareness. Mm-hmm. And I picked up Perez's uh, Radical Doula Guide, or was gifted it by someone, and read it, and it's a, a political primer for doula work. The first way that I engaged with the word doula was in this politically charged way of this is community care work. It needs to be full spectrum. It needs to be oriented around reproductive and social justice. And I was like, oh, I've been doing this. What happens if I like pursue it and pursue it with a name and pursue it with this intention? And so I did my first doula training in 2015. It was a birth doula training. Didn't know if I would love birth. That's a big thing. It's a big thing. Like, I was very nervous. What if I went to my first birth and I couldn't hang, but was fortunate to, through some of the other spheres I was working in, make my first few connections with clients, like, within a month of completing that training. Went to my first birth, and I loved it. And then for the few years after that, much of my work was oriented in that birth space in particular and has continued to expand from there. Can you talk about the social justice part of your work? Yeah, definitely. So it's funny, I'm often having a conversation with myself. And when I was driving here, I was having a conversation with myself around how it's impossible to show up for reproductive justice without being anti-capitalist. Yeah. (laughs) So that's what I was talking to myself about. So I think that the short side of it, right, is this idea of reproductive justice, which as defined by Sister Song, Women of Color Organizing for Reproductive Justice, is the right to have or not have children and parent those children in safe communities. And that's paraphrasing. And so that encompasses so much as living beings on this planet, we reproduce, right, as a collective. And the ways that human beings have complicated what it means to be and to be alive means that there's going to be justice integrated into anything that has to do with reproduction, right? And so reproductive justice and social justice are two sides of the same coin. People don't have equitable access to what they need in order to make autonomous decisions around whether or not they want to use their body to reproduce. If they have what they need, on either side of that, whether they're trying to access abortion or access what they need in order to grow their families. And certainly, what do they have what they need in order to parent? Because, my gosh, yeah. I don't think many people do. Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah. It has to be justice-oriented, always. Throughout the process of pregnancy and birth, I have thought so much and <laughs> had conversations with myself about privilege and about access, because everything that I encountered, I encounter from a place of white privilege, financial privilege, thin privilege, access privilege, I have health insurance, and all of these things are not inherent. And not everybody has the same kind of access I do. You know, I had the financial means to hire you, and I felt like I needed you in this space because the healthcare system doesn't actually take care of you as a person. It takes care of you if you are lucky physically, and that's it. Yeah. Let's talk about some of those barriers to care 
that people face and that you see in your work. Yeah. So yeah, in the care system that you're describing, which even once you have entered it, and even if you are navigating it, is imperfect, just even being able to access it in the first place is a privilege. And for so many people, there are barriers related to, like you said, health insurance, financial resource that are often the first things that people think of in terms of what's limiting them from Mm -hmm. accessing the healthcare system. But I think one of the things that reproductive justice really highlights for us is a lot of the barriers to care are much more deeply woven into people's lives, right? So I'm thinking of the parent, the pregnant person who already is a parent Mm -hmm. and can't access care appointments because there are no care appointments available when they aren't at work or there aren't any transportation lines along that office and that's the office that they can access through Medicaid or right there are so many of these things that come up for people that really make it feel and in some cases do make it impossible for them to get the care they need and so it's a much bigger picture I see care systems asking questions about accessibility and they'll zoom in on one thing. This is something that I interact with a lot as someone who does consulting work and continued education within care systems around queer and trans inclusion, right? So using that as an example, I'll work with people who are zooming in really close on how we make this care more welcoming, affirming, uh, centering of queer and trans experience. Not understanding that folks are multiply marginalized Mm. that there's no single issue. Everything is intersecting and overlapping. And so just even within that population, we know that queer and trans people and trans people in particular are less likely to be insured or are going to be underinsured, are less likely to be employed or going to be underemployed, are less likely to be housed, often are moving through living with addiction or in recovery, right? So there are all of these other factors that come in. There's higher rates of disability in queer and trans community. And so when we see care systems zoom in on one specific thing, which we also see and gets a lot of media attention uh, around race, right? And racial disparities um, in perinatal and infant health. They zoom in so close that they're not seeing the full scope of reproductive justice. And so when we think about what some of the specific barriers are in terms of not just health insurance and not just the transportation and not just financial resource, but also language, not just meaning like English speaking, right? But is your provider going to talk to you? Is the person you call to try to make the appointment going to talk to you in a culturally competent way? Are they going to be speaking the same language as you in terms of, are you going to understand them? So maybe you both speak English as your first language, but you have no idea what they're talking about, right? Everything's coded. There's just this massive disconnect between who people are. Like you said, like you go into the care system, you're not getting the emotional support you need. You're not being treated as a whole person. It's not person-centered care. And so the same is true for the steps to access that care in the first place. And so until the processes that people have to go through in order to just get to the 12-week pregnancy appointment, prenatal appointment, until those steps are reflective of the holistic, multifaceted nature of being a human being, care systems will continue to be inaccessible to most people in at least a few ways, right? I think about like the dominant culture narrative Right. And when we look at 
that list of like who fits the dominant culture mold of who they're expecting to see in perinatal care spaces. White, cishet, monogamous and married, has financial privilege, English speaking, has health care, has stable housing, isn't disabled, isn't living with addiction. We like can run down the list. For each of those pieces of that description of that mold that you don't fit, you can expect to encounter some obstacles, right? Maybe like you walk into the space, you do feel relatively at home. People do treat you in a culturally competent way. It's a reflection of, of who you are for the most part, but you're neurodivergent and you're not actually understanding some of the instructions of how you need to submit this visit to your healthcare plan, right? Or whatever the, the case may be. You're going to have an obstacle for each one of those identities that doesn't fit that mold. And so until the mold is just like gone, it's not going to work for most people. I have so many thoughts, but my first question is, how do we get rid of that mold? It seems like you are trying through education. I mean, I think it's like a lot of the questions we're looking at right now. Yeah, right? It's, it's a big... Systems change, cultural change. Yeah. And one thing that I try to be not cynical about, but honest about, is the levels at which people are ready, willing, and able to engage with complicated issues in this lifetime, right? I need to believe that people are doing the best they can with the tools they have in any given moment. That's the only way I can get up every day. Yep. And that means accepting there are people who work in those systems, there are people in decision-making positions within those systems who aren't going to be able to hold how complex some of this is and aren't going to be able to confront it in a substantial way. If that's the case, it's easy to be like, well, then what? But some people are, and I think that's the difference, right? Where even thinking about the work we did together as dual and client and like you and Jer, maybe we started from that place of like, we're going to make a birth plan and we're going to learn some skills that we need in order to go through this process of bringing a baby into the world. The only reason you got more out of it is because you were ready and willing and able to engage at a deeper level, right? And so that's always an offering, right? So when we step into these systems and we point these things out, we're offering an opportunity to realize another way in which this isn't working for everybody or even most people. But at the end of the day, we cannot, we can't make people change if, if they're not engaging with it. So when you are working with your clients, and I'm thinking specifically, you work a lot in the queer birthing space. How are you preparing your clients to engage with this world? And what is different about queer birth work outside of that cishet space mm -hmm. that they're entering into? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's a good follow up. Because if the fact of the matter is, you can only do so much to change the system, right? And it's slow trusting process over time what do we do then right and the answer is we do zoom in but we zoom in in a particular way right we zoom in on the individuals who are navigating the system right and we provide person-centered care and so when i'm working with queer and trans clients if that if i know that system is not going to make them feel seen heard or understood and maybe we can coordinate things and line them up with a great care provider and make sure they're in the best possible location for them. And maybe we can do some things to mitigate that feeling of not feeling seen, heard, or understood through the process. But it's likely to come up, at least sure. in some ways, right? So what if we offer something different over here, right? And so then doula care through these scenarios is, all right, maybe over in the care system, 
people are going to misgender you. People are going to make assumptions about what this pregnancy means to you or for your body. Um, you're gonna make assumptions about your family. Uh, people out in the world are probably gonna do similar things, just right, navigating community spaces. I'm not gonna do that as your doula. Hmm. So let's like create a container for you where you can take up space and be as expansive as possible. Because it's only there that we're going to be able to identify, all right, how do we bring this container with us into the care system that's less than ideal? How do we curate a toolbox specifically for you that will allow you to show up and take up as much space as possible to stand up for the things that you have the capacity to stand up for and to negotiate and cope with the things that don't feel like they're within your capacity right now? How can we assist you, whether that's me as your doula coming in, whether that's often, and it often is, thinking about who else is in your life? What are the specific asks mm. we can make of other people to ease the intensity of moving through this care system? And so, you know, I think when it comes to queer family experiences and queer family building experiences, they often come at a higher cost. Sometimes that's a literal mm-hmm. financial cost. And sometimes it's more emotional and experiential cost. But I would say that's the biggest difference. And it's not that different in a lot of ways, because everybody is a unique person moving through a system that wasn't designed to serve individual unique needs. I am curious, one, if you're seeing changes in birthing spaces surrounding queer and trans folks birthing, and... Let's just start there. Let's just start with that one. The other one will go later. Yeah, I I am. I'm definitely seeing changes. I'm seeing a lot more queer and trans birth workers too, which is like so exciting. And I think it's a reflection of change on a number of scales and at a number of levels. We're starting to see more research as well, specific to trans experience around fertility, around childbearing and child rearing and lactation, which there's still nowhere near enough of. But I think about within those systems that we would love to change, but we know it will take time, what's valuable to those systems and what's less valuable. And one thing that's less valuable is lived experience, right? Mm. So you go into a a system and you say, I know my body, I know who I am, I know what's true for me, and this is what I need. In a space that is research-based, that is more academic, that is technocratic, the way medical spaces are, they're gonna be like, that's cute, but <laughs> research says this. Yeah. Even though I don't think we should be beholden to <laughs> statistics and research, it is hopeful that we're starting to see more uh, research done around that. I think that means two things, not just that that translates into value in those systems, but also I don't think that we often, as a collective, start to seek out that valuable information that has the power to force systems to change until there's cultural value placed in the subject matter, right? So what that means to me is that more people just out in the world care about the reproductive experiences of queer and trans people. There are fewer people pathologizing those experiences. There are fewer people who are holding beliefs that are eugenics, eugenics in practice, right? Where like queer people shouldn't reproduce. That that is what the research means to me. And so that's hopeful change. That being said, I feel like I'm in my little bubble surrounded by queer birth workers. 
And that makes it feel like it's happening more quickly for me. And I still talk to and interact with a lot of people throughout the country and really around the world who are living their reproductive experiences who can't find what they need in those regards and who aren't seeing that change within the systems that they're navigating. And so as ever, it's happening, but much more slowly because there are real people who need that change to happen, to have happened decades ago, right? Not now and not at this rate. So yes, and Hmm. there's change. Yes, and. You work in the birthing world in a number of different capacities. I'm curious if there are spaces that you prefer to work, if you're seeing things better, say, in like a birthing center than a traditional hospital, or like, do you prefer home births? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I don't have uh, a preference in terms of the system, which a lot of folks who do this work do. The reason is that, especially for the population I serve, we can be harmed anywhere. And so it's really interesting in terms of systems and locations, like the general population in the U.S., fewer than 2% of people give birth outside of a hospital, and that includes birth centers. When we look at queer and trans people who are giving birth, it's over 20% are choosing out of hospital. And the reason for that is in some of those out of hospital systems, you might have a more personal relationship with your provider, right? There are fewer providers at a birth center than say a large hospital practice. Or if you're going with home birth midwifery, you might only need to get to know your midwife and their backup. And so that provides for people a relational care model that's much more indicative of person-centered care. And it's not always. It really comes down to, for me, I'm more interested in, like when I'm interviewing someone or doing a consult with someone, I'm more interested in hearing their reflections on what they are willing to do and what they, what energy and capacity they have towards making this experience one that feels good to them mm-hmm. in the in as many ways as it can, then I am interested in where are you giving birth or who are you giving birth with. There are, of course, exceptions to that. Like, there have been in my career hospitals I don't go to, providers I don't work with because of the harm I have seen in those systems or with those providers. But for the most part, I want to hear from the person, okay, what are we doing to make this the experience you want? I don't care whether you're in hospital, birth center, or giving birth at home. I just don't want to hear you say, oh, we'll be fine because. People do that with doulas too. Like, oh, well, that's why we hired you. Like, we won't have a C-section because we hired a doula. Oh, no, that's not true. (laughs) A case in point, like, raising my hand right here. Right. (laughs) Yeah, so life happens. Life happens, things change. And the medical industrial complex is a beast. And when we're in a hospital system, we can expect to come up against more, and that can be okay. I think I said to you and Jared at one point, I was like, I like a hospital birth. Like, you did. Yeah. Everything has a place. Like, everyone has their purpose there. It's, I'm a Virgo rising. Which <laughs> there's, this, there's a system that I can appreciate, and sometimes that system just kind of runs away from us. Mm-hmm. So it's a both and. As a cap rising, I completely understand. <laughs> I, I like a system. I like a role. I like a check mark next to the task I have just done. Right. You said that you have clients all over the world. And here we are in Austin, Texas. Tell me more about your 
expansive work online as an educator and as a, a doula in that space, in the online space. Yeah, sure. As an educator, I get to work with birth workers in training, mainly doulas, mainly full spectrum doulas, as well as, you know, educating and doing consulting work with providers of all types, which is really exciting. I think that's like equally as exciting as the direct client work I do to get to engage with people who are going to be doing this community care. I think that the interactions that we have across birth work communities help us to information share to find solutions and so that's really vital and so I do that with birthing advocacy doula trainings mainly and then in terms of client work one of the reasons that I'm able to connect with so many people in in so many different spheres is as I said when I was explaining what a doula is I think that doulas can serve folks through any transition right yeah a lot of folks if they, they may have heard of birth doulas and they may also have heard of death doulas both being, in my mind, like the same veil, Mm -hmm. um, people serving in in both spaces, and then there's everything in between. And so being trans myself and working with queer and trans clients, I get to do gender transition work with folks, doula work with folks who are navigating social and medical transition. And especially that social side, I think that's something that there isn't a lot of support for, and there isn't a lot of conversation around except if you're on TikTok and you're on that side of TikTok and that's only so helpful. (laughs) Um, So I do get to have these really deep relationships with people who are wanting to be affirmed and seen and validate and build some tools so that they can show up in the world and feel confident and this is who I am and this is what I need. And then similarly, as I was saying, I do feel there's change happening in the birth world specifically. But not everybody is seeing it where they are. Yeah. There are a lot of people who are needing resource that they don't have because of where they are geographically or other factors in their life around preconception all the way through early parenthood. I end up working with a lot of people remotely in those spaces too. And sometimes that involves help researching, okay, of what is available to you, what might be the best option. And sometimes that involves similar to the gender transition dual work, just like, yeah, this sucks. This sucks. Mm. But let me feel, maybe make sure you feel seen and how much this sucks um, and have as many tools as you can possibly within your capacity take on at this moment. So maybe it can suck a little less. Sometimes all you need is for somebody to see you enough to tell you that they see that it is awful. Yeah. I think back to the work that we did together and how much of it is transferable to the online space. And I'm so grateful that other people get to access you in that way. And I hope that there are lots of doulas that you are training to do that work online for people who don't have the kind of access that they need. Can you talk a little bit about your gender affirming work? Yeah, sure. I want to say too, I want so badly for there to be more people doing this work online. Training doulas is probably one of the hardest things I do. And maybe we will get to talk with Sabia and we'll talk more about this. I would this. love that. I would love to talk um, with, with both of you. About but that. yeah, Sabia is the, the founder of Birthing Advocacy Doula Trainings and my um, business partner there. Because people, similar to what we were discussing in terms of people navigating the medical system, how they're treated, what works about that, what doesn't. Aspiring birth workers, aspiring doulas often want a formula to follow, Mm. something that's prescriptive, and we can't do that, especially around gender doula work, which you're asking specifically about 
when I do consults with people and we're trying to see if we're a good fit to work together, I find myself often needing to clarify scope of practice. What is this relationship? Like, what can we expect of this relationship dynamic? And so scope of practice for doula work at large is something that's very highly debated. Again, because this is a role I think people have filled throughout human history, I don't think anyone gets to control it. I work for a certifying uh, organization. I choose not to certify with any of the organizations I train with. I think certification is just silly when we're doing community care. In order to work with someone around gender transition, I think there needs to be relational clarity and relational trust. For me, that means telling them that I'm not beholden to anyone so they can, right? I'm not a mandated reporter any more than any other citizen is. I'm not interested in making their life more complicated, especially coming from my own lived experience as a person who is in recovery, as a person with with mental health issues, as a person who does my best to show up in the world in a trauma-informed way because of the trauma I've experienced. Clarifying to them that I really do want them to be able to trust me and I'm not a therapist, right? And so gender transition doula work is a lot of that, like saying, hey, I'm going to, the conversations we have, the relationship we build, it's going to be somewhere between a friend and a therapist. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a medical professional. You know, those conversations with like your best friend where your best friend just gets you Mm. and like you're held and you don't have to give anything in that moment, and you do feel seen, heard, and understood, and you don't feel like it's transactional, that's the relationship we want to build. Except for I'm not going to give you my opinion, and I'm not going to like tell you when you do something wrong or like try to sway you. I have less vested interest in uh, shifting, shifting your opinion on something than maybe someone who's close to you in the way a friend is does. With the social transition work, that's really where it lands is We're building that relationship. I'm reflecting back what I'm hearing from them. Oftentimes I'm sharing resource with them because I think for a lot of us who are moving through gender transition, we're confused because we've been presented with this one way of being, this binary Mm -hmm. way of being, and we need access to more possibility models. Possibility models being something that, a phrase that Laverne Cox coined that I love. So a lot of times I'm sharing resources and possibility models with folks. And then when people are pursuing not just social but medical transition, it becomes really similar to the kind of educational work and um, logistical support that I do with anyone who's moving through the medical industrial complex. You know, same as I would do for someone who's going to give birth in a hospital. We're having the same conversations about how that system works, what informed consent actually is, how to advocate for yourself in that capacity. And if I get the privilege of being with someone in person through that medical aspect of their transition, whether that involves appointments related to accessing gender-affirming hormone therapy or appointments related to accessing gender-affirming surgeries, being in the room can make a big difference. Post-op care for folks accessing surgery is so similar to postpartum doula care. It's not even funny. I mean, like, it makes sense. So many people have surgical births. Yeah. What folks need is really similar. And sometimes I've heard people say, yeah, it's the same minus a baby. Well, a lot of the people do also still have kids, Yeah, right? So it really is, in my mind, it's the same work. And I feel really, really grateful that there are people who recognize that that kind of transitional support is valuable to them and invite me to be a part of their life in that way. Well, they're smart to invite you into their life that way. That's for sure. 
different possibility models. I want to get that on this mic one more time. I feel like whether you're accessing doula care or not, visibility of different possibility models is so incredibly valuable. And it's something that I wish I had earlier and still feel like I, I feel like I need to take your gender feels and pregnancy yeah. class, frankly, because I'm not over it. And yeah. I consider my gender uh, working on it mm-hmm. at 37 years old. And I think that that's the magic of living where we, in the time that we are in now and having folks like you and the online space. So I got to pay you to discuss gender feels more because I am certainly not done. And I think that's so, it's just so exciting. It's really exciting to me. And so many people, Caitlin, so many people, the embodied experience of conception, gestation, birth, lactation, any or all of those loss, any of those causes reflection around gender in a way that they have not reflected prior in their life. And so I would say that's one of the misconceptions that people have about who I work with when they hear who I am and what I do. They think they can picture in their head who my clients are and they think they can picture what that person has been through or they could come up with a list of what that person wants but that's that's so often not the case these like sensory embodied experience again when we're thinking about things that are sensory we're thinking about trauma when we're thinking about the things that change our lives as radically as reproductive experiences we're thinking about identity and when we're thinking about something that is treated under dominant culture as this tight very small box of what it means that you are pregnant or that you were pregnant or that you lactate. When you put someone in this tiny, tiny box and then you put them in a system within that within that box that doesn't see them as a whole person, yeah, they're going to want to push against the edges of that. And I think that feminism, mm-hmm. <laughs> as it started, <laughs> okay. was was part of that, right? And like, just we, we're, we're ever evolving collectives. We got it wrong. We're continuing to work yeah. on that. There's still people holding on to some of the like second wave feminism. We don't need that, right? But like, that's that's the root of it, right? Is I'm more than this, right? And so even for people who are cis women moving through these experiences, to be like forced into this box that is saying, this is who you are and this is all that's that all that you are and this is what's most meaningful about you and then that's the end and like you're a parent now uh you're a mom now so be happy in this particular way yeah toxic positivity culture also like deeply rooted in that like toxic idea of what femininity is oh my god yes one of the one of the things that like i think it was our first in-person meeting you're like fuck toxic positivity i was like this person's for me (laughs) yeah (laughs) like it's not just happy and easy and like you aren't just this now so yeah anyways there's space for everybody to have gender feels in pregnancy yeah that's been i mean just from a personal standpoint that's been going on for a long time and i'm still working out whether it's my addiction to the patriarchy and my own internalized um toxic masculinity Mm-hmm. You know, if, if like, that's why I don't feel like a woman, but I kind of never have. And I'm, I'm unpacking that still. And there are, I'm just grateful for the opportunity to do that on a deeper level. Mm-hmm. And working with you has certainly helped. Yeah, we just have a lot of unpacking left to do culturally. Yeah. In, in so many ways. 
Yeah. And I think everyone needs to do that. Everyone needs to unpack their gender feels because you're wearing a hat right now that says gender is dead. It is. Yeah, it's gone. It's dead. <laughs> well, it's like that, um, you know, things that will go around will be like, how, well, how do you know you're cis? Like, mm-hmm. when did you realize you were cis? <laughs> right? <laughs> Most people are like, uh... <laughs> We'll think about it. Like, I would really, and this is, like, mostly tongue-in-cheek, but also I'm serious. Like, I really don't think there are that many cis people. Like, I just don't think there are that many cis people. And I think there are a lot more non-binary trans people than there are binary trans people. Like, I just think that the binary doesn't make sense. But again, it's going back to not everybody's going to have the capacity, the ability, the wherewithal to engage at this level in their lifetime. And I don't mean that in a condescending way. No. I just mean that in, like, a... We aren't all resourced enough emotionally, energetically, or otherwise under capitalism to ask big questions like this. Um, And that's by design. That's absolutely by design. So, yeah, I would love for more cis people to go on gender journeys. It's actually my favorite. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) Can we talk a little bit about anti-capitalism in this work since we're here? Yeah. It's best if I lead with the personal, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I was having a shit time breastfeeding. wasn't really working for me. Super low milk production. And I texted you because you asked how things were going. I was like, fuck it. Like, this is it. Is it working well? Like, I make the amount of goddamn milk that I make. And you're like, yes, anti-capitalist lactation doula says that's the correct attitude. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, you are not your productivity. You are not what your body can produce. Right? Like, capitalism tells us labor, but not Mm -hmm. like that. Capitalism says all of your labor is what's valuable and only your labor, right? So the amount of work you put in, your level of productivity, the output, right? What's your means of production? That's where your value is. That's the only value you have. But somehow (laughs) that gets mistranslated when it comes to reproductive experience. And so I think like we see that in the way that uh, there are narratives around infant feeding and what's better and what's worse. We see that in the way there are narratives around even giving birth and what's better and what's worse. And and most of all, we see that in policy and like cultural attitudes towards what happens during this great experience. Start from trying to conceive or finding out that you're pregnant. Any energy you have to produce is getting drawn there. If you choose to pursue that pregnancy and you continue to carry that pregnancy, there's more energy. So your me your like energy with which to produce is like continuing to go towards literally growing a life. And they're telling you that that's not valuable, right? That you don't get paid leave, that you don't get health insurance by default, right? Like at least not quality health insurance. Like capitalism is is political, right? Like they want people to vote, but they don't need those people to be cared for. Right. And they, or they want you to not have an abortion, but they have no interest in or feel a responsibility for the person that you produce from those decisions. Right. And so, like, you know, abortion is a, a really sometimes feels like an easier way to approach talking about the intersection of, like, capitalism, anti-capitalism, and reproductive health because abortions are so expensive. Yeah. Like, they're so expensive. So even if you live in a place geographically that there's a clinic that it's possible for you to get to and you have a way to get there, and, like, uh, oftentimes that also involves a place to stay because maybe there's a waiting period, even if all those logistics are taken care of, we're still looking at hundreds of dollars, like 800, if not thousands of dollars to actually have that service completed. 
when we think about, right, and right now we're sitting in Texas where, like, maybe state bill aid is going to take effect on September 1st, policies like those, policies that block access to abortion under late-stage capitalism, that's a death sentence. What happens on the other side of that when you already are so under-resourced, right, that we see, and again, we shouldn't need data to, to prove this, right, but that in every large city in the United States, maybe it's like even outside of large cities, someone can't work a full-time minimum wage job and pay rent, pay the average rent in that place, right? How are you supposed to pay for diapers or formula or childcare so you can go back to that minimum wage job? There's no way, there's no way to care about reproductive justice without being anti-capitalist. That's the crux of it. And then, you know, when we start to layer on, on top of that, like you said earlier, you have the privilege to be able to hire me, right? Like the resource to be able to hire me. I think it's fucked up that you pay me money to do what I did. And I need (laughs) need to pay rent. Yeah. Right? Like, because I'm also surviving capitalism. But like, this is a community role. Like, we're supposed to take care of one another. And so the way that we approach the fact that there's like this clear disconnect between what we need in order to begin to dream of a world where there is reproductive justice and what we need in order to push back against capitalism. Like people are not seeing how closely those are intertwined, right? But the answer is the same in in both sides, right? Which is take care of one another. So thinking of the person who needs an abortion and maybe can physically get there, but can't pay for it. That's why there are abortion funds. That's why we pool our money to pay for people's, there's mutual aid, right? And similarly around the work that doulas do as community care workers, it's hard. It's hard to plan to give birth and to move through that threshold. It's hard to learn how to live your life with a new baby. We need to care for one another. And so like, this is something that I, I was just talking to a doula friend about this the other day. I love to work. I don't want to have to work in order to survive. I want to care for the people around me, right? Like I want to care for the people I'm in community with through these transitions because I think it's what I'm supposed to be doing. I hate that I have to do that under capitalism. And I try really hard to shift what that means, right? To shift the dynamic a little bit. It's challenging from all sides. So yeah, there's so many angles at which we could talk about anti-capitalism. I just keep thinking of as a new parent, the identity crisis that you go through becoming a new parent, people who uh, are already parents with a new child, having to put that child in daycare that you may or may not want to do, not having the resources, like children are expensive, you know, even without daycare, and just the heartbreak of not being able to a, like take care of the child the way that you want to, or B, having a child that you would rather not have mm-hmm. because of where you are. Right. Yeah, it's so fucked. And it's just, it's so much more fucked in the U.S. than it is anywhere else. And like, it's important to not lose sight of that. We're like, yeah. It, yeah, it's not good globally. Like on a global scale, these things are happening. But I'm thinking even in my work at BADT, my beloved operations manager is going to be going on mat leave, which had been planned, had only been working for BADT. And so mat leave was going to be this temporary thing, but then was able to get a short-term job. Like it's like a temp job with a Canadian organization. And just even working with that uh, organization for a number of weeks 
was eligible for a full year of paid mat leave through the Canadian government. Thank you, like, Canada. Like, can you imagine? No, um, I can't. So it's just like, and that's not saying that their care system is perfect or anything like that, but it's just so much worse here than I think most people even could wrap their heads around. As a client of yours, I'm curious what your potential clients actually think a doula is. What do they come to you for? And then what do they actually get? Well, I feel like you're the person to answer that question. But oh. maybe we can come back to that. Um, <laughs> well, I'll tell you what they, what I think I notice people coming to me for. Okay, and yeah. I can't tell you what anyone else gets, right? Because it's not my place to say. But definitely people come to me around birth and postpartum specifically. They do think they know what a doula is most of the time if they're reaching out to me. I very rarely talk to potential clients who have no idea what a doula does. But they think in this very, like, prescriptive way of what a doula does. And that's because a lot of doulas practice that way, where they're, like, maybe interviewing other doulas, too, who are telling them they're getting three prenatals, an on-call period for birth, and then one postpartum visit. And that's kind of the edges of the container. And so I think that clients start out there, and I try to follow a um, translatable enough format when I'm talking to people initially that they're going to see that I'm doing that and... But yeah, they might come because they're trying to decide whether they want to give birth in a hospital or in a birth center because they know that they want um, a cesarean section and they are having trouble advocating for that with their doctor because they're not sure if they want to have an epidural or not in their birth. And they're looking to gain some clarity. And so they're coming to a doula looking for the support they need in order to gain that clarity or in order to gain the, the information that will empower them to pursue the experience they're looking for in whatever system they choose. And so that's what people come to me for. What did you get? I got a whole new way of communicating and advocation. We came to you for those things and I specifically sought you out because I was looking for somebody who operated in the queer space. It's important for me to put my money into people who are anti-capitalist, if that makes sense, <laughs> you know, and people who, whose uh, communities and spaces I want to support. What we ended up getting was tools in our toolbox for, for the birthing space, for preparation, for afterwards, and also new ways of communicating in that birthing space and also between my partner and I about what we needed, learning to put our mask on before assisting others in a really deep way. I learned about accepting where I'm at. When birth didn't go as planned, like we had this natural birth in a hospital planned, we had done exercises, I had been stretching and doing some horrible massages to, <laughs> to my poor Ola to try and get this thing ready. You know, when an emergency C-section came about, I still felt like this was the experience that we needed to get through, to get through birth, to get through this new transition of ours. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, of course. This is your client testimonial. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking about any transition in life. When you talk about community care, that's what we're trying to do on this podcast. You know, for if we can just collect enough people and enough ideas and put them out there, then that's something. Yeah. 
get people the information they need. One thing about, you know, what y'all are doing on this podcast and something that I believe to be true about doula care is that some of it's like that tangible, practical information. And some of it is just like, it's possibility model. It's reprogramming, right? It's like, and again, it's anti-capitalist in nature because under capitalism, we're like really, really just mm, socialized to believe that what we need isn't important and what we need to feel whole doesn't matter at all. And we should be so lucky to just be alive and it's not enough. Offering people like you do these other ideas around, no, like what is real and true for you is real and true for you and that matters is hard work and it's important work. Well, you are doing it. You are doing it in spades. I'd like for you to talk about this new and exciting journey that you're about to embark on. Yeah. Oh, in this moment. No, in this moment, it feels, it does still feel exciting. So I am converting a school bus into my full-time home. It is partially converted in this moment. We're in Texas in summer and it desperately needs air conditioning. So it is a little bit of a headache in this exact moment, but it's going to provide me with the freedom and mobility to access more people and help those folks uh, increase their own access around all kinds of transition. Like I said, I do end up working with folks in part because they are in a space, whether circumstantially or geographically, that they don't have what they need to move through the transition they're experiencing. And so I hope to be able to be physically in person with more of those people, definitely around birth and conception and uh, gender affirming surgeries, and we'll see what else. So it is exciting to be able to do that and to also just be able to see so much of the world that I haven't seen. And I'm really looking forward to it. I'm really excited for you. And I'm so excited for the people who are going to get one-to-one access with you. It's going to be incredible. Yes. Hopefully I smell okay with just my outdoor shower. But, you know, they'll get one-to-one access regardless of how I smell. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) That's called being human. Yes. I had one question that I wanted to ask you, and I never did. Your business called Love Over Fear Wellness. Yeah. Where did you come up with the name? There's a few things that have been very formative for me. And one of them is like philosophically formative. One of them is this idea and this belief that I still hold to be true, that every decision we make and every action we take at its root is taken either out of fear or love. I'm someone who makes a lot of decisions historically and has developed many behaviors over time that were fear-based. I was programmed that way. And so, you know, this idea of love over fear is something I remind myself of. I don't even know how many times a day before I speak, before I decide. And it's not always clear, right, to us which is which. And that's part of the work. It's that, like, anxiety and intuition have the same voice, right? And similar, like sometimes love and fear sound exactly the same. We have to pick apart which is which. But I think particularly through big transitions and transitions that feel scary, everybody is asked to make decisions and presented with this opportunity 
it's maybe the only binary I believe in. <laughs> and I still like feel conflicted that it's a binary at all. But yeah, I think we get the opportunity to to evaluate that when we're making those decisions. Jenna, where can people find you? They can find me all over the internet, usually on Instagram at Love Over Fear Wellness. My website is also loveoverfearwellness.com. And my email is also loveoverfearwellness at gmail. If you need to find me or you'd like to connect, I would love to hear from you about any of the things we talked about today or anything else that you think might be of interest. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the Down There. I adore you, and I'm so grateful that you have come to talk with me today. It's been wonderful. Thank you for having me. It's so awesome to get to connect in this way. Jenna Brown, everyone. All of Jenna's contact information and ways to connect are in our show notes. I highly recommend following them on Instagram, where you can find tons of helpful content for queer, trans, and non-binary folks in birthing spaces, educational opportunities, and much more. Jenna also has an extensive resource section on their website for both giving and receiving, speaking in Jenna's own words here, emphasizing the importance of redistributing funds and resources to Black, Indigenous, and POC birth workers and leaders, among other organizations. Opportunities to receive include care, services, education, and more. I also want to shout out the Love Over Fear Community Fund, whose resources are being directly used to help support the work and education of Black birth workers and organizers, distribute the queer and pregnant pregnancy journal to those with limited resources, and personally serve full-spectrum doula clients in need at low to no cost. Please consider joining us in donating. You can find links to all of this in our show notes. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, tap that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. It helps many more people find us. So does rating us on iTunes and writing a review. We love and are grateful for all of your kind words and five-star reviews. Keep telling your friends, your family, your lovers, and anyone who has a down there story to tell. We want to hear from you and we'll be back in 2022. The Down There is produced by myself, Caitlin Smith-Rappaport, and Molly Hennigausen, with logo art by Jean Kim Studio. Music, sound design, and editing by Kate Marvin. Thanks for listening, everyone. Stay safe, wash your paws. We'll see you next time on The Down There.